Would you like to give a shout out to your dad for my new show? Yeah, I'd love to. Hey, Dad. Keep flying high. Love ya. G'day, Dad. G'day to my old man. G'day, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hello, Dad. Who is in heaven? Hi, Dad. Do you want to say hi to your dad? Hi, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hello, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hello, Dad. Thanks for everything, Dad. Hi, Dad. Hello, Pop. Happy birthday, Dad. Hi, Dad. How's it going, Dad? Thanks, Dad. Hello, Papa. Oi, Javi, old bastard. Hey, Dad. Hello, Dad. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, I, I love you. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hi, Dad. Where the hell are you? G'day, Dad. Hey, Dad. Happy hump day. Hello. And thanks for tuning in on another Wednesday evening to Sin Nation. If it wasn't clear from the show's intro, I'll spell it out to you. D-A-D. Yep, Dad. That's what the show's all about. Actually, I probably should have put an S on that spelling because it's not just one dad, but lots of different types of dads. The show's called Father Figures and I'm called Victor. Each week I have a dad theme and I think tonight's topic is fascinating. We're looking at adopting dads, but more on that later. Before anything else, happy Father's Day to every, every Aussie dad for last Sunday. I say Australian dads because there is not a global day for Father's Day. Our neighbours New Zealand are the only other country that joins us on the first Sunday of September in lauding dads. You can learn all about Father's Day, its history, commercialisation, traditions, facts and a whole heap more over on the podcast. Yep, I was in this very studio three days ago doing my Father's Day special. It was a more relaxed, extended episode that I really enjoyed. If you couldn't listen because you're attending to a brunch with Dad or a Sunday sleep-in, you can check out the podcast along with all the other previous episodes by searching Father Figures on iTunes, sin.org.au or Facebook. And on my Father's Day episode, I took you over to the Animal Kingdom. Yes, I learned that seahorses' dads actually fertilise their baby's eggs and get pregnant. Now, I'm going to refer back to wonderful nature because adoption isn't something that just us humans do. And we are talking about adoption on this episode. There are quite a few cases of animal species adopting others. A puppyless Dalmatian adopted a spotted lamb here in Australia. Researchers also discovered a pod of sperm whales adopting a deformed dolphin in the North Atlantic. And a baby hippopotamus was adopted in a Kenyan nature park by a 130-year-old male tortoise. But my all-time favourite case of animal interspecies adoption comes from the San Francisco Zoo, a lovely city it is. And this is actually a bit of a tragic story, but I think it's heartwarming nonetheless. In the San Fran Zoo lives Gorilla Coco, and Coco is renowned for being the gorilla that knows sign language. Famously, she's been taught around 2,000 English words in sign, of course, it's still a basic understanding of English, likened to that of a young child, but still very cool and impressive. Back in 1984, she was given a tiny kitten for Christmas to care for when she became unsatisfied with her stuffed animals. I guess that's a normal transition for any human. Coco cared for the kitten and adopted him as if it was her own baby, even trying to nurse it. But, unfortunately... 
Tragically, the cat escaped from the cage and was run over. When the zookeeper used sign language and explained to the gorilla the tragic news, Coco signed back words like bad, sad, frown and cry. She was later heard weeping in her cage. Tragically sad, but since then, Coco the gorilla has adopted and cared for a few more cats. So, adoption does exist in the animal kingdom, and it certainly exists with us humans. After three shows in seven days, that's three shows in a week. If you're sick of me, don't worry, we have three guests on tonight, and I'm going to be talking about adoption and their stories with each of them. And they are some fascinating stories. I chat to Dad Pip about his journey of becoming an adoptive father and later a biological parent. I talked to the co-founder and coordinator of Rethink Orphanages, Lee Matthews, about the work her organisation does, orphan tourism and the unnecessary institutionalisation of children, which can be likened to modern slavery. It's something new I learnt and it's quite tragic and sad, but I'm really glad we're talking about it tonight because it's important. And finally, we have a guest coming into the studio. Yes, right here sitting opposite me for a live on-air chat. Claire Halliday will be coming in to talk about her new book, All About Fathers, and her own story about being adopted and searching for her biological parents. It's going to be a massive show. (laughs) The last guest who came into the studio live didn't want to or couldn't stay for the last segment. Let's see if I can get Claire to enjoy Dad Joke of the Week, Dadisms and Dad Fashion with me. And I hope all you listeners stick around till the end because it's a great segment. And tonight, our Dad Fashion comes all the way from Canada. Yep, the country that bought us Jim Carrey and maple syrup is bringing farter figures its dad fashion later tonight. Stick around for that and the three fascinating guests. Let's get to tonight's dad news and another world leader who is also a dad has caught the newsroom's attention. Your TV program, My Life is Dad news! Dad news! It's time for Dads in the News. I hope you can get the day off work tomorrow, mums and dads, because you're going to need to pick up your kids early. The biggest Australian childcare centre strike is happening tomorrow. Union leaders claim 3,000 childcare workers are going to walk off the job at 3.20 tomorrow. It's a pretty odd and specific time to stop work for a strike, 3.20 on a Thursday afternoon. But there is a reason. Apparently, if you compare the childcare salary to the average Australian wage, 3.20 on a Thursday is effectively when they begin working for free. After the minimum 18 months training, a childcare worker only earns $3 an hour above minimum wage. So for me, it doesn't add up because childcare is becoming so expensive for parents. Um, But the union wants the award wage increased. Parents are still struggling to afford childcare. So something really has to give. The strike uh, tomorrow is expected to affect 10,000 families. So dads, if that's you... Get the whole day off and spend it with your kids. Next in Dad News, we're back on world leaders. So far on Father Figures, we've had Dad Presidents Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, but tonight is arguably the baddest dad of all. 
Kim Jong-un. North Korea's communist dynasty has ruled for 70 years thanks to a generation of dads. It's officially called the Mount Paktu bloodline. It started with Kim Jong-un's dad's dad. Yep, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, was the first leader and founder of the People's Republic of North Korea. So the grandfather started it and he's still worshipped after his death with over 500 statues of him across the country. Next in line with his, was his son, Kim Jong-il. And according to North Korean folklore, there was a double rainbow in the sky and a new star appeared when he was born. So he must have been special. And today we see his son, Kim Jong-un, in charge of North Korea. This is looking more like a royal family set up to me, not a communist country. But hey, who really knows what goes on in North Korea? The news from Dad Kim Jong-un tonight is not that he's launching nuclear missiles at Dad Trump. But apparently, he has his own secret son who is, set, who is set to take over his regime in true royal family style. So Kim Jong-un is the dad to three kids, but the first two were girls, according to his friend and ex-basketball star, Dennis Rodman, who also vouches that Kim Jong-un is a good dad. But he needs a son to take over his reign. Keep the family bloodline going. He's already dispatched two family members who could pose as counterclaims to his throne. Famously, his half-brother was poisoned at a Malaysian airport. And before that, Kim Jong-un's uncle was executed for plotting to overthrow him in power. But yes, South Korean intelligence has confirmed his third kid is a boy. The male bloodline has been in power since 1948 and looks set to continue. I do wonder, though, what Kim Jong-un's fathering is like. <laughs> anyway, finishing in sport and back on Australian soil, which I'm glad we're on with all those missiles flying around. AFL final starts tomorrow. I'm pumped. And Richmond superstar Dustin Martin signed a massive contract last week to stay at the club. He made the decision after visiting his dad in New Zealand. The deal is rumoured to be worth about $8 bucks over seven years huge. Last year, Dustin's dad, Shane Martin, was deported to New Zealand because of his criminal record. He was the former president of the Melbourne Rebels Bikey Club. Shane Martin has put in an application to return back to Melbourne to watch his son play finals footy and probably win the Brownlow. Let's have a listen to what his dad said on Channel 9's footy show about Dustin Martin's signing. Are you proud of your son today? He has lived the dream. Oh, <clears throat> very proud, Eddie. Um, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty emotional, you know, uh, to see your son develop into something special, you know. Um, both mum, mum and I, you know, you just, yeah, it's a little bit emotional, mate. Shane, it's, uh, it's Beck here. I just want to go back to the decision and the decision-making process. How important... Richmond's obviously been very good to Dustin and very good to yourself as well, allowing visits, etc. How important was it um, for Dustin to stay in that family environment? They care about Dustin a lot. Did that play a lot into the decision? Yeah, um, <clears throat> quite a bit, actually. You know, like, Dustin's a, a kid who likes his comfort. And um, he likes, he doesn't like, uh, he likes, how do you put it? <laughs> he likes to be settled instead of disturbed, you know what I mean? He's a very humble, shy kid. Um, 
but the Rich Richmond Football Club's been magnificent for him. And Shane, uh, your son's watching right now, and so's uh, the rest of your family over here. Have you got a message for him? Yeah, love your son, and I'm very proud with my heart. A man of few words. Nonetheless, he sounds awfully proud of his son. Dustin Martin also revealed his neck tattoos honoured his dad's Maori heritage and bloodline. He got the neck ink when he was 18, and at the time it was only his second tattoo. But he says he's got no regrets about them. That's a Dunder Dad News Bulletin wrapped up, and let's have our first bit of music. Of course, all our tunes are about dads, by dads, for dads, enjoyed by dads, or all of the above. I'm going to start with adoptive dad Lionel Richie. He married his high school sweetheart in 1975, and together they informally adopted two-year-old Nicole Escovedo. She was one of Lionel Richie's band members' daughters. He legally adopted her when she was nine years old and she became Nicole Ritchie. Yep, the famous TV personality and actor Nicole Ritchie is Lionel Ritchie's adopted daughter. Nice story and he is now the grandfather of her two children. Lionel Ritchie has sold over 100 million records worldwide and this is his romantic melody, Stuck On You. Enjoy. Hello, this is Sin National Radio. I'm Cedric, I'm age 92 and I'm Victor's dad's dad. I'm stuck on you I've got this feeling down deep in my soul That I just can't lose Guess I'm all Unfortunately, I don't have the rights to podcast the music I play on Sid Nation. I guess that just means you'll need to listen live every Wednesday from 7.30pm for all the wonderful dad tracks. Just stream it at sin.org.au or listen on your digital radio. was adoptive dad and musical icon Lionel Richie with Stuck On You. You're back listening to Father Figures on Sin Nation. Let's dive right into and discover this week's theme, adopting dads. So there are a few types of adoption and adoption probably has a somewhat tainted past in Australia. From the 1950s to the 1970s, birth control wasn't as prevalent and abortions were illegal and around 150,000 babies were adopted during this time. These were usually forced adoptions and also closed adoptions. Now, closed adoptions mean issuing an amended birth certificate from the original, and it has been estimated that 1 in 15 people are affected by closed adoption in Australia. So this could include the mother, father, kid, adoptive parents or extended families. But thankfully, adoption laws have changed to protect mothers, fathers and their babies. Adoption is declining and the introduction of welfare payments is in place to help single mothers keep their child. Adoption is a legal process where rights and responsibilities are transferred from a child's biological parent 
to the adopted parents. But tonight, we're going to be focusing more so on the emotional effects of adoption. So in Australia, you can adopt locally, some, which is someone from Australia. You can adopt inter-country, which is where you adopt children from other countries, or there is also known adoptions, you know, which can include stuff like step-parents adopting a child. Last year in Australia, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing, there was the lowest number of recorded adoptions. There were only 278 in Australia, so 151 were known child adoptions, 82 inter-country and 42 local adoptions. 42 local adoptions isn't that many and there are tens of thousands of children in out-of-home care for various reasons. So why is adoption at an all-time low? To give you an understanding, in 2015, there were 30,000 children in out-of-home care who have been living away from their birth parents for at least two years. But last year, there were only 42 local adoptions. So that's just massive difference there in numbers of adoptions and then Australian kids who need adoptions. In 2015, AdoptChange commissioned independent research that showed 89% of Australians believed adoption gave a child a better chance at life. But adoption is for life. It's a huge decision for parents. And there are reasons why people do adopt, to either help children, to start a family of their own if they're unable to have kids themselves. But I think that's the key, not being able to have kids yourselves. And with IVF research improving, why adopt when you can have kids of your own? But tonight, I mostly speak with people about their experiences with adoption. It's a huge topic and it's going to be hard to cover it all, but I think it's most important just to share some stories. Firstly, we're going to take a look at inter-country adoption, 90% of which come from Asian countries. There are famous cases like Power Couple, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt adopting three children, but obviously for reasons they didn't want to come on the show. So our first guest tonight is Dad Pitt. Pitt has a really fascinating fatherhood story. His partner and him had trouble conceiving and he wasn't that keen on IVF, so he suggested to his partner that they adopt. After a three-year-long process, they adopted two Ethiopian girls and then nine months after being back in Australia with their two new girls, his partner fell pregnant with one of their own. So Pip is an adoptive and biological dad. I ask him about his family's challenges, the journey, and dealing with the cultural differences. Have a listen. You mentioned before some of the challenges that you know the kids and you um, sort of faced. Uh, were they just sort of ma- mainly to do with the shift of cultures and and was that you know were there lots of yeah 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 absolutely the shift of culture was massive um and i i so i remember looking at izzy at when she was she was sort of like six or an eight and i just thought um imagine izzy our biological kid being shifted to africa where Everyone's everyone's a different colour. They they eat different food. They speak a different language, and she would be told by us, "Look, see you later. You're going to this other country, and you're never never going to see us again." And you know, to put to put myself in, you know, having a biological kid and sort of 
knowing how she might be affected by that and to put myself in the, um, you know, the, to, in the, you know, through the experience that Esky and Sice have been through, I just, I just, I'm not sure how they did it, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, they did it and they, they, they survived it. Um, and they're great kids. They're great. They're great people. Um, look, I think, I think the big challenge, um, for them was the, the displacement, um, and not knowing, not necessarily, or potentially not knowing, you know, having an identity issue, but, I think we probably did the best we could by by um, going back to Ethiopia every two years and, and just immersing them back in their culture and their country and with their families. Um, and, uh, and and their 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 biological mother, who who it turned out um, is still alive, um, she she was quite pragmatic about it. She just said, "Oh, look, you know, I born them. You bring them up for me." It's like. And she was sort of inclined to say, you know, in our culture, if you can't do it, then we we hand the kids over to an aunt or an uncle. So in her mind, she had just adopted an aunt and uncle to bring the kids up. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's pretty pragmatic. That could work. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was yeah, it's, a re- it's really hard to explain how tough it would, would have been for those kids. But, but um they're great. They're they're really good. They acknowledge it. They acknowledge the toughness associated with it. Um, we don't talk about it a lot, um, but yeah, they they say it's pretty pretty heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You hear a lot of success. You hear a lot of sort of glamour stories, uh, Victor, and and quite a lot of people say, oh, you know, we we it it's been amazing for these kids, and they've had this, and it and it's been such a a, um, a beautiful journey. Um, it is beautiful, but it's but it's had many many challenges along the way, um, and 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 they haven't haven't been easy. But but I, but all all emotional challenges really. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is due to culture and displacement and and identity. Um, but I think we I think we're pretty good nowadays. We touched on it yesterday, but. You said you thought they were going to be orphans, and then you found out that their mother was still uh, alive. Yeah, that's that's right. We, I mean, to be um, to be eligible for intercountry adoption in Ethiopia, um, they 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 should be orphaned, um, and and in theory, the um, there's no relative that is able to take take care of them or care for them if you know if they become orphaned. So, as it's transpired, their mother is is still alive, and we actually have quite a lot of lot to do with their mother, and and they have brothers and sisters in Ethiopia, and and you know we've we've got a lot to do with them as well, um, which you know, it, it's yeah. Look, we adopted two kids, but we adopted a family, Ethiopian family, in reality, and and you know they've adopted us, um, so. And, and Izzy, and and Izzy's adopted, you know, another country and a culture as well. So, yeah, so it, it sort of wasn't, and, and that's not an uncommon um, scenario. I mean, I think there's um, a lot of people that have adopted through in a country and then found out at a later date that, that um, there are living parents or, you know, or brothers and sisters that are surviving. And, and, that, and that's, 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 that's pretty tough. No, so the kids because they're um, 
from Ethiopia and they don't exactly look like you or Jan. And um, so obviously they were always, you know, going to know that they weren't your um, biological kids. But how important, and especially once you found out they had family in Ethiopia, was it for you to be sort of um, proactive in letting them understand their background and, and taking them to Ethiopia and stuff like that? Oh, to, for me, for me, Victor, massively important. I just, I, I did have a, I had a bit of a wobble when I sort of realised that they, you know, they did have family in Ethiopia, and I just said, oh well, I can't turn. And I thought, what, what, you know, how, how did this happen? And and you know, my response to that was, you know, to to I can't change it, but to to um, to the best of my ability, just just build the bridge between Ethiopia and Australia, you know, our, our Australian family and their Ethiopian family and, and have, you know, constant, constant, you know, repeat every two year visits and connection with them. Um, and, and we do, we, we have a lot to do with their family and that was, that's really important for me. And I think in retrospect, it was really important for Eski and Sos. And I think if they hadn't had that, um, then, then they they wouldn't be as balanced as they are today. Um, but also coming back to Izzy as well. I mean, if she hadn't, I remember when she was about uh, maybe five, she turned to Jan one day and she said, "Look, Mum, how come my sisters have got brown skin?" You know, she she it just didn't occur to her before she was five, and and so um, and Jan explained. And um, I can't remember how she explained it, but anyway, it 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 um, she went along with it. And but just the fact that um, we all have been back to Ethiopia, you know, and, and enough for everyone to appreciate that everyone appreciate who they are and who's and what the identity is, and and appreciate. You know, Izzy appreciates who Eski and Sos are, but she still sees them as her sisters. And the same for Eski and Sos because they've taken Izzy back there and and presented her as her as their sister. Um, so I think really I think um, as tough as it was, I think the visits, the regular visits to Ethiopia, have been the key to to you know having some balance um, through the process. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah. I mean they. Yeah, they I mean, they love their dad. All three of them love their dad. They love their mum. They love their they love their you know life in Australia. Um, but you know, Eski and Sos still have a you know massive place in their heart for Ethiopia, and I I accept that. I respect that. Um, um, you know that that's 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 where that's where they spent the first sort of six or eight years of their life. Um, and you know, up to six and eight, the you know the pretty, you know, formative years. Um, that's where all the programming takes place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, yeah. So, how uh, old were they when they came to Australia with you for the first time? Oh well, there's another there's another thing. They were meant to be four and six, but they were probably closer to six and eight. Um, so when we when we went over to pick them up, they were um, they were you know put forward as a four and a six year old. But you know, as as time went along we we found out they were, they were a couple of years older than that um which which probably makes it a bit harder actually victor because they they you know they they 
you know, they're 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 programmed, um, you know, fairly well emotionally and mentally formed people by that age, and and to um, if they'd been younger, I think they, you know, oh, look, I don't know. I was going to say it might have been easier for them, but maybe not because. You know, they 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 have a they have a good strong identity with their culture, and um, you know because they were a bit older, and that's been reinforced by the fact that we've you know visited on a regular basis. Yeah. From your experiences, do you think it should be, uh, you know, made easier or cheaper or quicker to adopt? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I think. I think it's. I think it's correct. I think it should. I think it should be well considered. I think it should be well researched. And I think, just like we have a nine-month gestation period with a biological kid, I think it's about right to have a three-year gestation period for inter-country adoption. I think. I think you got to give it some. You know, good solid thought. Do do your research. Get ready for the process because it's it's a big process. Um, you've got to understand what you're doing. Um, you know, you know, prep yourself as much as you can because, at the end of the day, you know, it, it like same with biological kids, you're never going to be prepared for for what what's presented. But, but you know, you're never going to be entirely prepared. You're not you might be ninety percent prepared, but you know, you, you get presented with challenges and and hurdles along the way, and you just got to adapt and change and 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 um and yeah work with what you've got and so yeah look i think i think the three-year period's about right i think you know a lot of people say i oh, know it should be easier it should be cheaper it should be quicker but i i think it's about right i think it's i think the process is good you between you know being an adoptive dad and a biological dad or do you for you is it the same the same thing the same feeling um I, yeah look i reckon i am i reckon you know i've just I've just, yeah, for for different reasons, but I've just got this undeniable love and and sort of, you know, respect and admiration for all three girls, and I just I just I just love what they do and how they go about their life. I think they're I think they're all amazing, you know. They're all they're all very 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 powerful and very very spirited. There's no sort of you know, shrinking violets in our camp, um, but they're you know they're, they're yeah I I can't I can't really you know I know that I know it's a it's a very controversial question but I actually don't I honestly don't feel any different towards Eskie and Sauce as I do towards Isabel. Would you recommend adoption to people, even you know, whether they can have kids or not? Um. Um, look, yeah, yeah. Look, I I think it's been an incredibly rich and valuable experience. I feel incredibly privileged to be to be part of it um, and to have that journey. I just can't imagine how I could have had a richer, more more you know exciting but challenging journey um, through the last sort of seventeen, eighteen years. But um, I, look, I, I would say, I mean, it it, it it's I've probably said it and sound like a broken record. It's had its challenges, and I think a lot of the challenges have come about by, by, um, you know, Jan and I questioning, um, 
you know, whether whether it was the right thing to do or not. Um, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. You get on with it, and it it's and love those girls, um, you know, massively. And I, I think I think I th- to answer your question, I think you got to you go into adoption with a really open mind and really, really you know, open eyes and be prepared to adapt and and change path. Um, um, Regularly, you've got you've got to be really, really lateral and really, really um, creative, and accept that. Well, it's probably like parenting, really. Adoption and parenting is it is what it is, and you get presented with a truckload of challenges, and you've just got to get on with it. Yeah, well, it sounds like yeah. it's it's you're happy with how it uh, all fitted together in the end, which is good. Yeah, more than happy. I think it's. I think it's. I I pinch myself sometimes and 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 really say, well, how, you know, this, this is a richness, a, a you know, a life, a journey that that I never would have expected, and and just to be part of, of that, I think, is pretty amazing. Um, I, I look, and also out of that, uh, Victor. I mean, we. I had a. I mean, I I love Ethiopia. I just I love going there. I love the country. I love the culture. Um, and that's just an added bonus. Wow. Thanks, Pip. What struck me most about that was how proactive Pip was in embracing the Ethiopian culture and not shying away from anything. He's been supportive, empathetic and proactive in connecting the two cultures. It sounded like it was an amazing journey but came with its fair share of challenges. Pip's story inspired me to contact Rethink Orphanages. Uh, after re- I also read some articles that they'd been cited in the paper and there has been a rise of institutionalisation and orphan tourism in developing countries. I spoke to Lee Matthews, who is the co-founder of the Rethink Orphanages, and they aim to address the unnecessary separation of children from families. She started because she felt uneasy about volunteering in orphanages in Cambodia and Vietnam whilst backpacking. She told me figures show orphan tourism to be a $183 billion industry. Have a listen. And so the the main problem with the orphanages uh, is that the, lots of times the kids are, uh, you know, aren't actually orphans and they, um, you know, so they have parents otherwise. So it, there's... You see a lot of is it? Do you see a lot of the you know child child trafficking and slavery and is that sort of the main problem with it and they're being exploited? Yeah, look, uh, we know that anywhere up to ninety percent of kids in orphanages and other kinds of residential care institutions uh, actually have one or more living parents that, with support, would be willing and able to look after them. Um, the problem with orphanages, I guess, there's two ways to look at it. The, the first problem is that institutionalisation or the institutional model of care for children is well documented to be extremely harmful for all children, no matter what, what type of, I guess, institution it is. We, we know that institutionalisation itself is not the best way for a child to grow up and you're not going to get the best outcomes 
In fact, you're going to see a whole range of negative consequences from growing up in an institution. Um, we're talking about, you know, learning difficulties, attachment disorders, high risk of physical and sexual abuse, neglect, lack of primary caregivers. And when we talk about adults or young adults that have left institutional care, we're talking about a higher rate of suicide, higher rate of involvement in criminal activity, and so on. So the outcomes for a child that's grown up in an institution are quite poor, uh, and that is the reason why the best place for a child to grow up is within a family. Then if you add in the phenomenon of orphanage tourism or volunteerism, you've got a whole range of people coming in, often for the short term, who are often unskilled, and have no experience of the local context, no knowledge of that child's background, and no experience working with highly traumatised and vulnerable children. And these visits, while they might feel good for the volunteerist or the visitor, they're actually really exacerbating the, the trauma that these children have gone through. And we have young people that have uh, grown up where there's been a strong program of visitors and volunteers and they talk about the feelings of shame and abandonment that they have every time a volunteer comes, bonds with them and then leaves. So while it's two separate issues, they are obviously inextricably linked uh, and that's why we, we really talk about not going and volunteering in orphanages and not propping up this system that is harmful to children. Are the inst institutionalizations uh, on the rise in these developing countries, and and is it is it do we see it in a lot of different uh, countries? Absolutely, and we also see um, a direct correlation between tourist arrivals and the number of institutions and the number of children in those institutions. And at the same time, we see a reduction in the amount of actual orphans. Um, a lot, of, a lot of orphanages are located in tourist hotspots, uh, for example, in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and Phnom Penh, in Kathmandu, and Pokhara, in Nepal. Uh, you will see a direct correlation inextricably linked to tourism. Um, we don't have institutional care like that in Australia, and we don't have it for a really good reason. And we certainly would never allow volunteers to turn up and play with children that are uh, experiencing trauma and grief and abandonment and all of those things. So it's a really good idea to just think, could you do it here? And if not, then don't do it there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually one of the uh, dads on tonight's show did um, do an inter-country adoption and he found out later on down the track that what he thought he was adopting orphans, they were actually, their biological mum was still alive back in Ethiopia. Is that, you know, and it's the same how we hear that some of the um, kids in the orphans, you know, are, are in fact not orphans. Is So is that something you, that can happen as well with, with adoption, um, you know, international adoption? 
Absolutely, and and sadly, you know, it's actually not that uncommon. Um, children are very often trafficked into orphanages. They have their documents falsified, um, and the 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 desires of people to have children and to adopt children contribute to this, um, unfortunately, and it's a really negative outcome because there's economic gain to be made in the community. Um, so that is very common. Uh, we, we talk about paper orphans. Um, in Nepal, for example, um, there's, there's some research that shows that we have scouts from orphanages going out to communities and uh, rural communities and convincing parents to send their children to Kathmandu for an education at boarding school. The children go and parents pay, children go and then they don't hear from their children or the school. So they travel to Kathmandu to try to track down their children. Their boarding school doesn't exist. The children's documents have been falsified to say they're orphans and they are in some cases adopted or trafficked between orphanages. Um, so it's very, very hard to be sure that children are having the backgrounds that they're, that they're saying they do. Mm, it's shattering. It is, it is. And, you know, I really emphasise with your guests um, tonight and how difficult that must have been to find that out. Um, it's, it's really sad and... Um, I guess it demonstrates the, the challenges with children in institutions and, and why why it's also so harmful. There are so many layers to this. I guess the intention of of Australians is probably uh, never questioned. But um, you know, how can how can an Australian who wants to support and wants to help um, you know check that I guess their donation or their time is being properly used? Yeah, look, I think you're right. We shouldn't call into question the good intentions of people that genuinely want to help uh, vulnerable children overseas, and, and I think that's really important and that shouldn't stop. What we do say is do your research. Um, make sure that you are supporting programs that keep families together. Um, make sure that if you do currently support an orphanage, that your funds are tied to what we would call deinstitutionalization. So actually getting those kids out of that orphanage and into family-based care back in their communities. So making sure that we're not propping up this system of unnecessary institutionalization. And for those kids that are in institutions, how do we support the process of getting them back into families? Um, so it's about doing, doing due diligence, um, and, and really understanding the issues. And if you do support an orphanage, then, then making sure that you're being part of the, the solution. Mm -hmm. we, certainly, we certainly don't advocate for everybody to, everybody that's currently supporting an orphanage to pull all of their money immediately. Um, that would be an enormous child protection issue in itself. Uh, what we do advocate is for a considered approach to transitioning away from orphanage and residential care to family-based care. 
Oh, I'm Pip. Just had an interview with Victor on uh, Father Figures on the station Sin Nation. And this next track is a track by my youngest daughter who's in a band called Pretty People. And interestingly enough, the title of the track is called Fits Like a Glove. Hope you love it. Unfortunately, I don't have the rights to podcast the music I play on Sid Nation. I guess that just means you'll need to listen live every Wednesday from 7.30pm for all the wonderful dad tracks. Just stream it at sin.org.au or listen on your digital radio. That was one of our guests tonight's daughter who was singing on that track. That was Pretty People with Fits Like a Glove. Great stuff. You're back on Sid Nation listening to Father Figures. So we've had some pretty powerful and emotional stories about inter-country adoption. But our last guest tonight is in the studio now, adopted child Claire Halliday, who is sitting opposite me. Thanks for coming in, Claire. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So... We were just discussing in that break a little bit about your interesting story. So I guess for the listeners, we could start, I guess, with your upbringing and when you found out you were adopted and, you know, how open your parents were about telling you. Yep. Well, um, I've been living in Melbourne for about 25 years, but I actually was born and raised in Adelaide. So I grew up in a a really loving adoptive family. Of course, I didn't know then that they were my adoptive family. I just thought they were my family. There was no reason to think that um, I wasn't part of them. It wasn't like we looked, you know, definitely different. I could have been their child. But when I was 11, I was snooping around through my mum's bedside drawers, as I'm sure maybe kids, you know, <laughs> sometimes snoop around in their parents' things. And I actually found my adoption certificate. And I remember feeling shocked, but there was an element of kind of it making sense. So I can't explain it, but I, I feel like there was part of me that felt like something was different. And I don't know what it was or why I thought that way, but I remember finding that adoption certificate and and feeling like, oh, that's why I feel this way. So it's kind of a weird thing. But um, obviously then I had to talk about it with them and they were told back in those days, my my mum and dad, my adoptive mum and dad, um, at the peak of the adoption boom when I was born in the the late 60s, they were told back then, you know, you don't have to tell the child, they'll never know. So a lot of parents that were adopting babies were actually told, you know, don't tell the child they're not yours um, because nobody ever thought that the laws would change, which they did. And so um, the laws did change when I was about 18. I think they changed in different states all around Australia. But for me in South Australia, I was about 18. You could apply for non-identifying information and that's when I was able to uh, get some sense of who 
my dad was and who my mum really was simply by a letter that comes to you and it doesn't give you their name or any identifying information. It says things like, your dad was a postman and he was 21 years old and he grew up in Tasmania and he was this tall and his hair colour was this and his eye colour was this and he weighed this much and that's pretty much what you get. And then it says the same for your mother and it tells you what hospital you were born at and that's pretty much it. It was about a page and a half long non-identifying information but suddenly um, reading those those figures and those numbers and you know the color of somebody's complexion I realized that I looked like people that I'd never met. Mm, it's it's fascinating and do you think when you found out it affected your relationship with your adoptive parents? Yeah interestingly it affected my relationship with my adoptive mum but I don't think it affected my relationship with my adoptive dad. I guess it's because when you're adopted and you start to think about, you know, why you became adopted and I guess you see yourself as being maybe abandoned and unwanted and unloved, in my mind, and I think it's true of other adopted people that I speak to, you think about the birth mother because she's the one that you think actually made that decision. She's the one who you, whose body you were inside. She's the one who had to go through the pregnancy, deliver you. And so for me, I never actually thought about my birth father. Everything that I had, every, every level of angst I had about being adopted was attached to my birth mother. So my poor adoptive mother, I think, suffered because I sort of ended up resenting her. But my adoptive dad, who I had a great relationship with, kind of just sailed on through. And I don't think our relationship was impacted in the same way that it was with my mum. Mm-hmm. And were they supportive when you sort of you know, wanted to search for your biological parents or they sort of told you not to? No, they never told me not to, but I think it's also true of a lot of adopted people that I've spoken to that there is a fear with adoptive parents. There's a fear that maybe their love wasn't enough for you and now maybe you're going to abandon them somehow and and find a deeper love with these other people. And so I think that's quite a common thing and I I definitely got that sense, especially from my adoptive mum, that there was a fear attached to the idea of me looking for my birth mother and looking for my birth father um, because I think I think they feel like maybe they're going to be replaced and, you know, they've given their heart and soul to raising you as, as your parents and suddenly you know that you actually belong to somebody else technically, like biologically, and so the fact that you want to go find that is hard for them to understand. I think it's probably harder for the mother. Like I said, my dad and I always had a pretty a pretty solid relationship. It didn't affect us in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I know you did find both your mother and your father or your um, biological ones, but you said you only had non-identifying papers. So how did you go about the search for them? Yep. Well, with that non-identifying information, that was a certain component of the laws that changed. And they changed at different times in different states around the country, but a similar sort of 1985-ish was back when that um, came around South Australia and Victoria. And then a couple of years later, the laws changed again. That was like the opening the gate. And then after that, the laws changed within a few years and you could actually apply for identifying information. And so it was a few years after 
that initial non-identifying information that I could actually apply for my original birth certificate, which didn't have my dad's name on it, but it had my birth mother's name on it. And from having that name, I was able to track her down to the town in Tasmania with a sort of uncommon surname. I literally rang about eight or ten people with that name in the small town in Tasmania and eventually spoke to my maternal grandfather, so my birth mother's dad. He didn't know who I was. I think I made it sound like I was maybe an old school friend, you know, trying to track somebody down. He gave me my birth mother's name and I literally phoned her within half an hour of getting that certificate. I didn't have a happy relationship with her, so she didn't want to connect with me. And again, coming back to that difference of the attitude with the dad and the mum, for me, I had all my hopes pinned on connecting with my birth mother and I hadn't even thought about who my birth father was. Didn't even think, I, I thought of him as sort of a bit of sperm in the dark, really. It was like the mother's the one that's made the decision and I didn't really factor in the dad. And I think that's because I had a happy relationship with my own dad. But when I got rejected by my birth mother and I got rejected by her a few times because I kept trying again like an idiot, but when I finally got the picture that she wasn't interested, the best piece of information that she did give me was the name of my birth father and so then because I was unable to have a relationship with her I went looking for him and I found him and so I was able to meet him only a few times because he was still in Tasmania and by that time I was living in Melbourne but it was really important to be able to meet him and connect with him but then that brought about its own issues too because I found a man who unfortunately was suffering from bipolar and so when I first met him he was really at the peak of a particularly manic kind of period in his life and since meeting him I, I learned more about him and he did definitely have the highs and lows and he'd been in and out of psychiatric institutions and sadly tried to take his own life more than once and so the children that did grow up with him and and the woman that he ended up marrying didn't have the best childhood so in a way I was thankful that you know he and my birth mother made the decision not to keep me because it it would have been a very different life for me had I grown up in that environment because I think the kids that he did raise although they loved him and he was a much loved man they did have a hard time just because of his illness so so suddenly finding him and finding that I had some connection to that illness was was really confronting yeah I was going to say um because of you know mental illness and stuff can Mm. get passed down absolutely so Um, yeah when you don't know anything about your biological connection and then suddenly you find it and you find this terrible mental mental illness which for him was was a terrible mental illness and it had a huge impact on his life and there was a real fear thinking you know is this what I'm part of is this what I'm connected to and as much as I love being able to see physically what he looked like and being able to hug him and being able to talk to him it came with a real fear and a feeling like oh maybe I wish I hadn't done that maybe I wish I hadn't known is this going to come to me one day is this going to affect my own children so I suddenly became connected to this you know potential legacy that I hadn't really thought about in my life before I had no connection to it mm-hmm. and uh, uh, did, apart from that did you feel like you got closure after yeah you found them? Uh, the word closure I don't know if you ever get closure do you say it in an American accent I'm not sure but um <laughs> It it was definitely great. I met him three times and sadly he died. Not anything to do with his his mental health. He just dropped dead of a heart attack unexpectedly when he was quite young, about 10 years ago. And so I got a phone call from somebody I didn't know who turned out to be his daughter, my half-sister, saying, Dad's dead. 
And I was on the other end of the phone in Melbourne saying, what are you talking about? Because my adoptive dad had died about four years before. And so there's this voice, this, this voice on the end of the phone saying, dad's dead and crying because her dad had literally just died the day before. And it was my half-sister. And she had the presence of mind because she knew that I existed. And he had told his family that, you know, I existed and that I'd met him and she must have known that he had my name and phone number written down somewhere on a piece of paper in his drawer or something and even though she just lost her dad my dad too she had the presence of mind to stand up for me in her family and say somebody has to tell Claire in Melbourne so I got this call um, she said you've got to come to the funeral you're one of his children and so within about 48 hours I was on a plane to Tasmania and I walked in straight from the airport into a hire car straight into the church walked in as my dad's funeral was already underway and they had read out my name as one of his children and I did this sort of family reunion on steroids where I basically heard everything about my dad's life even though he was almost a stranger in my life but you know at funerals mm. everybody tells the stories and you get this picture of this person so I was sitting there walking into this congregation which it was a packed church he was a really popular guy in his community he was a local counsellor and it was really overwhelming to see how many people loved and respected my birth father and I felt sad that I never got that opportunity to really know him properly and it was it was really quite overwhelming being being in the church, being at the service, and then, of course, having all these members of his extended family, including my half-siblings, come up to me and say, you know, we didn't really know about you, how amazing that you're here, and everybody asking questions about me and my life. It was, it was a really big day. Mm, it, sounds, it sounds really full-on. It was really <laughs> full-on. And as well, you told me before your mum uh, had something that she had to... Oh, your adoptive mum, sorry, yeah. had something she had to tell the family. Yeah, so my adoption story is a common adoption story in one way because, like I said, back when I was born, there was about 7,000 babies a year at the peak of the adoption boom given up for adoption. But my story is a bit more complicated in that um, when the laws changed and I got access to all that information that revealed who my birth mother was, my adoptive mother was also having somebody looking for her. And when I was in my 20s, my adoptive mum had to tell the secret to not only me but to my dad, her husband, and my brother, who was their biological child, that she'd actually had an affair before she was married to him with a married man and that she'd got pregnant and that she had a baby daughter that she had given up for adoption. And so she'd not told, you know... My dad, her husband, she'd gone on and then married him, had my brother, their son, couldn't have any more children, adopted me. And then all these years later, when the laws changed, this baby that she'd given up for adoption had tracked her down in the same way that I tracked down my birth mother. But unlike my situation, which ended up unhappy with my birth mother, my mum, my adoptive mum, welcomed her with open arms. And so I then had this unusual situation of seeing, you know, somebody else's um, birth mum, my adoptive mum, reunite with their birth daughter when I couldn't have that in my own life. But it gave me a really interesting view of the whole adoption story from all angles because mm. I was in an unusual situation that I got to see it from all those sides. And it was one of the triggers that kept me going back to my birth mother and trying again because I said to her, hey, you'll never guess what, you know, 
my adoptive mum is actually like you and we've welcomed this daughter who's like me into our lives and none of us, you know, have exploded. She comes to our family Christmases. It's all okay. But for my birth mother, she still wasn't interested. So I'm so grateful that my birth dad did want to see me because it definitely did give me that connection to family, which you don't have as an adopted person. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And and I guess um, back to talking about dads, you have written a book called Things My Father Taught Me. Yep. Um was it your own were you inspired by your own story? Yeah, absolutely. That was the motivation for it. So Things My Father Taught Me just came out a few weeks ago. But last year I had Things My Mother Taught Me and the inspiration for that was my adoption story. And it was thinking about the whole nature versus nurture, you know, how much of me is made up by the environment I was raised in and how much of me is made up by all those genetic biological connections from my birth father and my birth mother that I didn't really know about. And so I'm a bit obsessed with that whole nature versus nurture idea. And so that was the start of both of those books and it was me writing a chapter in each of those books um, talking about, you know, my relationship like in things my father taught me, my relationship with my adoptive dad and the search for my birth father and the relationship I had with him. But then I go out and interview other quite well-known people and I ask them about the relationship they have with their dads. So people from radio and TV and and different walks of life that, you know, people's names hopefully recognise. And, yeah, ask them about their relationship with their dad. And it was really great to hear so many positive relationships with dads. There's some negative ones in there too because, you know, it's real life. And as you mentioned before, not every relationship with the dad is a positive one. Sadly, not every family is a happy one. But overwhelmingly, most of the stories that I've included in the book are positive ones. And there's people like David Kosh and Anne Peacock and Neil Mitchell and... Anthony Kalia and Santo Chilaro from Working Dog and a whole bunch of people just talking about their dads and how much love and how much respect they have for their dad and the lessons they've learned from their dad. And it was, you know, heartwarming is a bit of a sickly term, but it was heartwarming in, in that it made me think, oh, you know, I'm almost envious of the close relationship that so many people I interviewed have with their dads. Mm. And I think when you're adopted, as much as I love my adoptive dad, there's some sense of detachment. There's some sense of distance, especially when you find out you are adopted. There's some sense of not belonging. And so to hear these stories of of these people that are just so connected with their fathers and, and got emotional to me and cried when they talk about their dads and cried when they talk about the love that they have for their dad, I found it really, really lovely. Mm. And obviously as well, you mentioned all the the you know famous people that are on the book, but you write about your own experiences in Absolutely. the book as well, which I think are fascinating. We've heard about them tonight, so I think it's only fitting that the last question I ask you is um, what your father taught you, or fathers, I guess. I can say plural because you've, you've got two. So. Yeah, I have got two, and, well, they've both passed away, sadly, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a book about, you know, my dad taught me how to pitch a tent, or, although my dad did teach me some practical things, <laughs> like how to cook beans in a can on a campfire and stuff like that. It's more about just values and the philosophy and, I guess, the outlook of life. So when I talk about what my dad taught me, I have to really talk about my adoptive dad because that was the dad who raised me for my whole life. And, and he, he was a hardworking man, very working-class family I was brought up in. And my dad, you know, got out there and ran his own business, a factory, and, and worked his, his butt off every day. And he was a hardworking man, so I guess he taught me resilience. Um, he had a great sense of humour. He taught me how to laugh at things, even when things maybe aren't going so well for you. 
He had quite a, a witty kind of cutting wit, that sort of laconic Australian, classic Australian, you mm-hmm. know, dry sense of humour that I think is being lost a little bit now. But, yeah, I think resilience would be something that I learned from him, just getting up and, and having the, I guess, not courage, but, you know, just the will to, to get up and do what you have to do, even mm-hmm. if, you know, obstacles are thrown in your way sometimes. Oh, I think that's a, a good trait to have for sure. Well, I think we're probably all we've got time for, which is a shame because I think it's truly a fascinating story you have about adoption. But I think, I hope, I definitely got an understanding of it. And um, so thanks again for coming in to the studio. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No worries. So um, would you like, I've got one segment to go before I wrap up. You can stick around for it or you can... You can go. It's up to you. Oh, I'm happy to stay. That's fine. Okay, perfectly. So before we get to that, I'll just quickly say tonight about adoption, I've certainly learnt a lot. Uh, I think there's no doubt adoption can be wonderful, scary, and probably different for every situation. Um, And parents will adopt for different reasons, and kids will probably be adopted for different reasons. And it is a big umbrella. um, And there are often lots of sad stories surrounding it, but there are also some amazing experiences uh, that I've heard earlier tonight that if you love unconditionally, it can work just like a biological connection. It can be a wonderful, rich experience. But there is no doubt some hardship and challenges associated with adoption that can affect a lot of people. So I think we should wrap it up. Claire's going to stick around for the end, which is exciting because most of the guests who come in don't stick around. So we'll have Dad Joke of the Week, Dadism and Dad Fashion right now. Hey, do you think your dad's funny? No. No. No, no way. Yeah, not really. No. Hey, do you think your dad's funny? Oh, no. No. Ah, no way. Oh? No. Not really. <laughs> no. No way. No. 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 Not particularly. <laughs> does your dad think he's funny? Of course. Yes. Yeah, he really does. Yes, I think he thinks he's hilarious. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Does your dad think he's funny? Yeah, he does. Yes. Yes, he does. Yeah, I Yep. Doesn't every dad? Yes. Yes. Yes! Is your dad a fashionista? What's that? A fashionista. He loves his fedora. Oh, yes. Aren't they all? He thinks he is. No way. Nah, he dresses lame. Certainly not. No way, Jose. Jeans and joggers every day. A Crocs cool? Hell no. He tries to be. Oh, he thinks he does. No. Does your dad say things that annoy you? Every day. Almost every day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, what? Oh, yeah, actually, quite regularly. Yeah. Every day. Always. Yeah. Uh, does your dad say things that annoy you? Yeah, quite regularly. Yeah. Yes. Yes! Yes! <laughs> yes. Every day. Yeah. Before me and Claire bring you my answers and, and discuss them, let's see how tonight's dad responded. Do you want to answer my uh, three questions that every dad on the show gets asked? I, I can, yeah, I can. I don't know of a dad joke, actually. I can't think of a dad joke. I'm, I, they just think I'm a goose. They all think I'm funny and that I do silly stuff. So 
but I don't necessarily have a dad joke. Do you have a, a dadism? Um, what's my dadism? My dadism is 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 come on time and place, and I always say that you know be appropriate, and it's all about time and place. And they just roll their eyes and go, "Here we go," you know. <laughs> and and quite often it's about behaviour or language, and and I say that each of them, listen, you're not going to use that language in front of your grandmother or in a job interview. So it's all about time and place. So they get sick of that one. Fashion? Fashion? Yeah, look, my fashion can be embarrassing. I think that the embarrassing fashion that they all um, wins complain about is the fact that whenever I'm home, I'm quite often walking around in my underpants and a T-shirt, and they just think that's totally inappropriate. They just think that's unacceptable behaviour. So, <laughs> does it um, stop you? <laughs> you take, what's that? Does it stop you? <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't stop me because the theory is, if I go to the beach and I wear um, swimmers, I don't see a big difference to swimmers in a pair of underpants. You know, what I mean. So, I've rationalised that it's okay, and they just think it's categorically wrong. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to change. <laughs> Pip, that was very good answers. I think it's becoming clear and I'm not sure anyone needed confirmation that dads like wearing jocks around the house. I've certainly experienced the discourtesy of dad wandering around the joint in jocks. Um, it is bearable. Just put some pants on when guests come around. Now, Claire, do you have any fond or not so fond memories of your dad's Dad fashion, dad jokes or yeah, dad fashion? Yeah, my dad actually did used to walk around the house. He had the big sort of whitey Y fronts, you know, oh, the really, no. yeah, yeah, because I'm quite a bit older than you. So that puts him in a whole other older guy category. And he was known also to sometimes wear the whole socks with sandals kind of thing. Yeah, we've covered that on yeah. an earlier episode. Yeah, it's no good. He's no, he's, he's no sure, good. certainly not the only dad to do that. So I think, listeners, it's my turn to to have a go at my three for the week. And dad jokes, we'll start off with them and they have a special place in lots of families. They're often repeated, familiar and always far too predictable. And I've got someone to, to bounce them off tonight, which is exciting. So there's actually um, a little sequence of, of three tonight. So the first one is, and these are... Um, please forgive me if you've, if you've heard them before. Okay. Um, but I think that's half... The reason of dad jokes uh-huh. is for them to be repetitive. What do you call a deer with no eyes? I don't know. No idea. Oh, I should and have known that one. <laughs> what do you call a deer with no eyes or legs? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to let you tell me. Still no idea. And what do you call a deer with no eyes or legs that's bleeding? Hit me with it. Still bloody no idea. <laughs> uh, that's what we love about dad jokes. Daggy, predictable, repetitive and probably frustrating. Tonight's dadism, I'm not sure if you have any experiences with your dad saying things a lot that sort of can somewhat become annoying after a while. My dad, it's not going to make him sound like a great man. My dad was a big drinker. My my adoptive dad was quite a big drinker, but not in a you know bad way, in a sort of funny, funny Benny Hill kind of way. So he used to do this old Dave Allen joke where um, it's a visual joke, so it's going to fail on radio. But you know, it's about walking to the bar and asking you know for two fingers of scotch, but the two fingers are your little finger and your index finger extended. So oh. in other words, fill it up to the top. Yep. So my dad's you know visual joke whenever anybody <laughs> came around, do you want a drink? Oh yeah, just two fingers. And 
he'd put his hand up to the glass like that, which is, of course, your fingers are spanning the entire the entire distance of the glass. Yes. That was my dad's. Oh, yeah, yeah. here like he goes again. Horns. Yeah, the bullhorns, yeah. if yep. anyone's wondering, with the hands. Yep. Um, my, my dadism tonight is uh, something that dads actually probably have the right to say, uh, and that's when you sort of are requesting uh, them to give you a lift anywhere. They always say, am I a taxi service? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think I've said that to my children. I don't think that's just the domain of dads. Yeah, lots of these fall under the parent umbrella, but generally dads are pretty good at being the taxi service. I was reading a study in the UK from Sainsbury Bank, quiz 2000 mums and dads, based on eight years of children's lives from eight to 16 years old. And they found out dads spent 22 days of their lives, that's 22 full days of their lives, waiting for their kids when they're having to pick them up. So am I a taxi service or the new generation of dads, maybe am I an Uber service? Exactly. Maybe dad is an Uber driver in the part, uh, part yeah, time. Exactly, Who knows? exactly. And completing tonight with dad fashion, coming all the way from Maple Leaf Country, Canada, it's the Canadian tuxedo tonight. So denim on denim and often on more denim. You a fan? Double denim is a no-no. Yeah, triple denim as well. Uh, <laughs> we all know some dads can struggle to match outfits, so how do they solve that? They just match everything. So they go denim on denim and it makes sense. Blend it mm-hmm. all together and no one knows you're not colour outfit coordinated. I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> and with that, I think we're done for another episode of Fighter Figures. Our guest captivated me tonight. Thanks to everyone who was part of it. Thanks to Claire who took the effort to come into the studio and I've had finally someone to bounce some dad jokes off, which was enjoyable. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so much better for it too. (laughs) I think we we barely scratched the surface of adoptive dads tonight, but I think it still gave us a good insight. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. As always, the show will be podcast. You can find Father Figures on iTunes, Facebook or sin.org.au. And as for next week, I still have no idea what we'll be talking about, but it is the 10th episode so yes, Father Figures hits double figures next Wednesday evening. So tune in again at 7.30 on Sin Nation. I'll leave you with Stevie Wonder celebrating the birth of his kid and daughter Aisha. You can hear her crying at the start of the track and on the outro. Stevie Wonder then went on to have nine kids with five different women. Nine kids? I yes. have no idea. Yes, nine. Um, so this is about his first daughter, Stevie Wonder, with Isn't She Lovely. Tell your dad, tell your friends, tell your dad's friends. Tell your friend's dad. Hi, it's Victor's dad. You've been listening to another episode of Farter Figures on Sin Nation. (laughs) 